0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, two major art historical shows in Texas. First, George Shackleford joins me to discuss Monet, the Early Years at the Kimball Art Museum. The exhibition features about 60 paintings from the first phase of Claude Monet's career, from a painting he made in Normandy in 1858 when he was just 18 years old, through 1872 when Monet lived in Argentile along the Seine near Paris. The exhibition is in Fort Worth through January 29th next year, when it will travel to the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. The show's beautiful catalog was published by the Kimball, it was distributed by Yale University Press, Amazon has it for 50 bucks, and we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Shackelford is the Kimball's deputy director. He's previously been on the podcast to discuss Gauguin, Caillebotte, and 19th century French portraiture. Then David Breslin joins me to discuss the Manil Collections presentation of Picasso the Line, an exhibition of Picasso's line drawings. It was curated by Carmen Jimenez, the founding director of the Museo Picasso Malaga. Breslin coordinated the Houston presentation. He also wrote for the exhibition's catalog, which was published by the Manil and distributed by Yale, about what Breslin calls Picasso's cartographic line. The exhibition's on view through January 8, 2017. But first, George Shackelford after the break. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hirshhorn. Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit PulitzerArts.org. Realist. Surrealist. Hippie. Punk. Icon. Bruce Conner. It's all true— is on view now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Connor, a famous prankster and master of multimedia, was a visionary of San Francisco's art scene but could not be defined by any one movement. Experience over 250 works from this provocative artist's incredible output, including film, assemblages, paintings, photograms, and more. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. And we're back. George Shackelford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. This show covers Monet's earliest decade and a half, roughly 1858 to 1872. 1872 is the year in which Monet paints Impression Sunrise, the painting that, that would give the ism its name, if you will. Why is is that 14-year period, that initial period, worthy of examination, and what can we hope to or expect to learn from it?
1: I think it's one of the most important periods in Monet's life in that it is the time in which he is deciding who he's going to be. He is trying out new painting methods that will be useful to him throughout his career. And it's a time when he is not only inventing new ways to paint, but also simultaneously inventing who Claude Monet is, not only for himself, but for a a public that he desires to recognize him.
0: When you say he's coming up with new ways to paint, could you be a little more specific? How does, how does that look on the canvas?
1: Sure. The first painting in this exhibition is, in a sense, a little bit of an outlier. It's painted in 1858 under the tutelage of Boudin, who is painting in the same field nearby. And it's an alarmingly good picture for a picture to be painted by a 17-year-old boy. It is scarily, scarily competent, and yet it is very much still in the manner of an artist like Daubigny, who was famed among the Barbizon artists for his paintings of, you know, fields and rivers. From that rather tightly worked object, you move within a matter of 14 catalog numbers in the catalog résonne and five years to a a, a remarkably different painting that looks like he has been trying to abstract Theodore Rousseau. From this point on, you see him going back and forth between a hand that is delicate and sometimes very tender to one that is bold, incisive, blatant, sometimes even or or even harsh and he the monet 's development is by no means a kind of linear progress that you would you know be able to line things up and have them come one after the other after the other, because he goes backwards, forwards, makes a great leap forward, and then decides to go backwards and do something else. So in that way, we see him literally on the canvas trying out ideas. The most, the most blatant of these tryouts is the pair of paintings that he paints side by side with Renoir at uh, the bathing, bathing place La Grande on the island of Bougie, at Bougilal, and he is in those two paintings, once at the Met, once at the National Gallery in London. He's really taking risks, going as far out on a limb, I think, as he goes in this period and creating some paintings. He referred to them by the French term pochade, which translates roughly as a bad sketch. He paints these pictures that are truly experimental just for the painting of them, I think. It's all, I think it's really all about the exercise of. of the representation of something, an effect, and how, how abstracted, how sort of staccato, how sort of shorthand he can make that effect and still have it uh, come across.
0: So, just to fill in a couple titles of paintings you mentioned, because we'll have all of these paintings up on manpodcast.com, the, the 1858 painting that you referenced is View Near Ruel. And we'll try to have the related, very closely related, Boudin and Daubigny paintings. The paintings at La Grenouillère.
1: Yeah, Metropolitan Museum of Art, 1869, and National Gallery, London. One is, is, is titled Bathers
0: at La Grenouillère, and the other is... Probably Bathing Place at La Grenouillère. Oh, the, the other is just La Grenouillère at the Met. So we'll have all of those up on, on manpodcast.com. So if this is Monet's foundational period, the, the, this kind of first decade, what is he building the foundation out of? Is it a particular style? Is it particular geographies and places?
1: Monet really begins his career as a draftsman, as a uh, a drawer of, of caricatures in Le Havre where he grew up, and he comes under the under the the, the eye of Eugène Boudin who is from Le Havre. And who is then uh, not so well known as he was to become a few years later, but a a, a well known landscape painter with Buddha's encouragement, Monet begins to paint, and so that's the transition from the the artist who is essentially basically self taught or had high school lessons in drawings, and an artist who is trained by a master painter with Buddha's. Uh, Help. He in, enters art school in Paris. He studies in the studio of Charles Glère, the Swiss painter of who's living in Paris and who uh, has a big studio of of rather liberal ways of studying. Not a whole lot of supervision, but a but a a good sort of fermenting environment in which to learn. But from this essentially rudimentary technique that he's learning, he is taking the example, I think, first of Courbet and then later, but surprisingly later, of Manet and sort of reforming the notion of landscape as practiced by the artists like Corot or Rousseau or Daubigny in the so-called Barbizon school and making the effects generally broader, more emphatically brushy, if you will. And a good example of this is the painting the Luncheon on the Grass from 1866. A vast uh, canvas, it was originally 13 by 18 feet, that he begins for the Salon of 1866, having exhibited the previous li- year a beach scene, now at the Kimball, that is, was a, a smaller picture. When he enlarges the scope of the painting, he also simultaneously enlarges the brushstroke, enlarges the, the effects so that you end up with something that if you saw it reproduced small in a book, looks perfectly detailed, but when you are standing before it, everything about it is gigantic. The, the leaves are painted with a brush that must be an inch and a half wide. Nothing about it is minute and detailed. It's all rendered at a sort of, at a sort of level of, of finish that would have been, had it ever been exhibited, truly astonishing. He doesn't show the canvas, he rolls it up, it gets mildewed, he unrolls it, he has to cut off the mildewed bits. It's now in two parts, now at the Musée d'Orsay, which is very kindly led it to us for the exhibition.
0: Is Monet consciously, intentionally working on a decorative scale because he's interested in the decorative tradition in, in Luncheon on in the Grass, or is there another reason he's, he's working that big?
1: Well, honestly... On a practical level, I think he's painting that big so that he will inevitably be noticed. There's a, I think there's a, a, a sort of PR strategy there that, though he got noticed for his pair of seascapes in 1865, got a review. He's 24 years old. He's made a really brilliant start at the Salon. He decides, in the way that, it, frankly, that a 25-year-old might well do, To say, okay, i got to really make a huge impact this time. And the best way to do it is to, A, change subject matter. So no more beach. We're going to be in the woods, and it's going to be full of people. And then I better also make it a different scale. Let's make it 13 by 18 feet. And, And that creates something that would have, without question, had it gotten into the salon, been almost scandalous, almost certainly a scandalous picture in the way that a few years before Manet's uh, Luncheon on the Grass was the scandal of the Salon des Refusés.
0: So it's not until much, much later in his career then that Monet becomes interested in decoration.
1: I think so. I think that there are certainly hints in all of Monet of an interest in what the theorists would have called quote, the decorative, close quote, which is to say the aspect of all art that is con- concerned with abstract qualities, the placement of painting, paint on the surface of the canvas, the arrangement of the forms, that which does not necessarily convey meaning or subject matter but which is clearly just about the the process of the paint itself. And that is a, a, a tendency that flows through his art that goes all the way through the series paintings of the 1890s, and that erupts in earnest when he decides to paint the big mural decorations uh, after the First World War. But at this point, I think when he's painting a big painting, it's not about making it a mural. He's not painting... A picture that a few years before Puvis de Chavannes had painted the great mural cycle that's now at Amiens, for instance, and they were gigantic mural-size paintings, originally free on on their own stretchers that were bought by the state and installed as a staircase decoration uh, in a new museum. Monet's not intending that this painting should ever become that kind of painting. I think. I think. I think the billboard quality of it would A have rendered it almost unsalable. I mean, who has a who who what private buyer is going to buy an 18 feet, feet wide painting, much less a 13-foot-high one? And so he, it becomes really, I think, a stunt. Very much like the the fact that in 1876 he paints the great Japonaise in Boston as a purely as a stunt for the second impressionist exhibition. It's a way of getting himself noticed. You know, in a, in, a, in a show that is dominated by landscape painters, suddenly the chief landscape painter paints a, a, a figure picture that's bright red. In the same way, I think here, Monet had gotten his start as the painter of the seascape, and he wants to say, there are more brushes in my box than, than just waves and clouds.
0: Let's dip into those those seascapes a bit. In In the early 1860s, the first paintings Monet sends to the Salon are indeed marine paintings. And you note in the catalog that there was a rising fashion in Paris and France for marine scenes at about this time. Why? Was it simply because middle class Parisians were beginning to make it to the coast or was there something else to it?
1: I wish I could explain it in in any sort of documented terms. We know it happened because we see the we see the volume of things and we see the titles of things that were exhibited at the salon and the titles of things that were were sold. Why they were being bought, the motivation for the the collectors to be interested in them is is something I, I don't really have an explanation for. I think that certainly the sea, the painting of the sea, does perhaps more than the painting of the land or of the forest give a painter a, a great opportunity to explore really different effects or a wide variety of effects on in the same composition. Because you have, in the case of, say, the Kimball's uh, Pointe de la Eve at Low Tide, the painting that really inspired me to organize this exhibition, that Salon painting of 1865, you have not only the sand, the, the gritty, rocky sand with its little pools that can reflect light, you have the surface of the water here at low tide, so not so many waves, and a surface that is very interesting and, and, and multifaceted and changing all the time. And then you have the sky. And the sky in this case is... Is either it's going to rain or it has just rained. I mean, it's it's very much the sense of of sort of stormy weather with breaks in the sky to go to deep blue, deep blue, vast infinity sky in the background. So more than a more than a forest view, there is this sort of boundless horizon, a limitless sky, a wonderful view out to sea. And for the painter who wants to Practice, either practice his, his ability to paint natural effects or else to display his ability to paint natural effects. A seascape is a is a great idea.
0: And that painting is full of different surfaces from the water to the beach to the rocky beach to the corbeesque esque hillside, stretching it a bit, to a surface that one can imagine but not touch the sky and the clouds. I mean, it's all there.
1: It re- really is. It really is. And it's, And it's what got him noticed by, by the critics. You know, they'd never seen him before. Manet saw a, a painting by an artist named Monet and said, who is this guy pastiching me, stealing my name? And it, they weren't meet, to meet until a few years later. But so he, he really did, was noticed very much from the start in in that regard.
0: The Kimball painting is an 1865 period. In, in, in this early period, in the mid to late 1860s, a lot of the paintings Monet is submitting to the Salon were rejected by the jury. I'm going to offer two of them here, two strikingly different paintings. We'll have images of both on the website, of course. Can you tell us why you think each of these would have been rejected? The first one is Women in the Garden from uh, 1867.
1: I think it's the the shockingly flat, unmodulated areas of of pure color that don't allow the visitor to enter the canvas as if it were deep space monet's insistence on using essentially undifferentiated patches of color and and to distinguish say light and shadow where so the li- the lit up part of something is very lit up and there's a h- sharp edge between it and the uh, shadowed part of something whether that's grass a path a, a dress and I think that let's use the word schematic, uh, almost sort of a jigsaw effect in in these paintings was more than the Salon of 1867 could bear. Mind you, all of Monet's colleagues were refused in the Salon of 1867. It was an unusually harsh jury, and it was so harsh that they were also shocked that they started thinking about whether they should withdraw from the Salon and exhibit independently exactly what they would do in 1874 with the first Impressionist exhibition, to be a a group of independent artists exhibiting simultaneously with the Salon, but in a different venue and and independent of a jury. So that idea has its its birth, if you will, in the Salon of 1867 and the rejection of Monet, Bazille, Renoir, Sisley, etc.,
0: Women in the Garden would remain an important painting to him all his life. He would he would talk about it at at length,
1: along with the Luncheon on the Grass.
0: Yeah, near the end of both of which, I guess he held on to till the end of his life. In I mean, he had to get one of them back, but he had it at the end of his life. That in the
1: way be. he had to get both of them back because it wasn't oh until that's right yeah paid the debt for the the Luncheon on the Grass that uh, he got it back from the guy who had it on collateral, if you will, a former then,
0: landlord, I think.
1: Yes, exactly. And then Bazille had bought Women on the Grass, somewhat under pressure from Monet, who needed some more money. And so he says, take this painting, Bazille, and now you owe me for it, and you need to pay me on time every month. He even complains that Bazille is running late in his payments. Uh, Bazille, who, mind you, has financed him along with his aunt and, and father for the last five or six years. He had to get that back through through the intervention, in a sense, of Manet from Basile's parents after Basile's death in the Franco-Prussian War. So he gets both of those paintings back, but after he has moved to Giverny in 1883, that, that move is, he moves finally in 83 to the house that he will occupy for the rest of his life. And it's when he has a, a fixed abode and a bigger place to, to display things that he retrieves those canvases and can put them up in his house. They move from house to garden studio, etc. in the last decades of his life. And he uses them, in a sense, from what I can tell from the descriptions, as touchstones of the visit to Giverny. They were one of the destinations that you took when you were going to the house after, let's say, 1895. And not only were you seeing what he was doing with his series paintings and, and later with the big water lily decorations, but you were taken to see the paintings from the 1860s as part of your lesson in what Monet meant. And I think that he does that very consciously and talks about luncheon on the grass and women in the garden, Women of the Garden, by the way, which is in the wonderful exhibition of Bazille that's going to open soon in at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and will be coming to Washington in the springtime. So that ex- that painting is, because of its con- connection with Bazille, in the exhibition uh, devoted to Bazille and early Impressionism.
0: There is a great photograph in the catalog of Monet taking a visitor through the, the very scene you just described. We'll try to get an image of it for the website. Speaking of, of Bazille, another painting that gets rejected by the salon is is the magpie from 1869 a painting that couldn't be any more different from women in the garden why didn't the magpie fly oh that was bad why didn't the magpie uh, make it in <laughs> take wing
1: why did why didn't it perch in the salon you know how do you, how how to explain that because it is one of monet's most ravishingly beautiful paintings is it only that you know, 150 years later, we get it? Or did it have something about it? Or, you know, was there a a jury that just didn't like what Monet was representing? There there were people who thought of this group of artists, and they recognized them as being a group together, Basile Sisley, Renoir Monet. They recognized them as, if you will, troublemakers. And I think that the the notion of of their stirring up trouble, may well have caused a more conservative side of the Salon jury to simply say, no, let's not have these guys. So no matter how how lovely the picture is to our eyes in 18, excuse me, in, in 2016, for an audience, for a, a, a jury in the late 1860s, it was a a painting that you could accuse of being summary slashed on simply a uh, uh, you know uh, to use the great expression that Ruskin used of Whistler throwing a pot of paint in the public's eye in this case uh, slatherings tubes of white cake icing that are laid on with with wide brushes and just incredibly sort of bold and and uh, and broad effects of oily oily paint that represents the the fallen snow the reflectance on the uh, on the landscape in the distance the the white patches of snow clinging to a chestnut tree all of these effects work which to us are so dear may well have been to a salon jury uh, exactly the kind of thing that they could accuse of ineptitude in order to have an excuse to omit the offending Young artist.
0: It's a superb painting. I mentioned Bazille in relation to it because it seems as though Monet uh, received the paints from which the painting was made
1: from Bazille. From Bazille, yes. He said, send me lo- white, lots of white. And so uh, you, you're you thinking that maybe he w- he was needing so much white because he was going to paint a picture where certainly the dominant pigment is uh, probably white lead. And he, he uses it to great effect. Interestingly, if you measure popularity by postcard sales, which is one metric to use the, the, the term of the 21st century, it is the most popular painting at the Musée d'Orsay because it sells more postcards than any other picture there. And so to get it here on this side of the Atlantic is a, is a great pleasure. I wish we could keep it because I think it would look really beautiful at the Kimball Art Museum.
0: The Magpie is, is 1869. The next year, Monet turns 30, and he is married. He gets married to to his apparently understanding wife, Camille, who allows him to paint his way through their Trouville honeymoon.
1: What else was he going to do? I mean, maybe maybe let's think. What else was she going to do with him on the honeymoon? He he chooses to paint her so that she is simply sitting there doing what she would have been doing anyway, let's say, because the whole point of going to Truville was to get dressed up and go to the beach.
0: Promenade down the beach, yeah.
1: To promenade down the beach, or to sit in clumps of, of men and women, often dominated by seated women. Uh, you When you look at the paintings of Boudin for this period, and, and there are paintings that were made on exactly the same vacation in 1870 because the Boudins were there with the Monet's. When you look at those paintings, you see crowds of people sitting around, being beautiful, and that I think is what he he conspires with Camille Monet, who was a very beautiful, if somewhat exotic-looking, big dark eyes. She is the is the subject of these paintings, and two of the great ones are here: two of uh, her seated, one from the Yale Art Gallery, and the other from the Marmottan Museum, in Paris. Together with a a little sketch of her from Marmottan. And then a, a wonderful view of the of the boardwalk from Hartford, from the Wadsworth uh, Museum. The the this group of things is really a record of uh, a vacation, one of those moments when Monet goes to a place that is though near La Havre. I mean, you can see the the banks of the of the channel at La across the way in one of the paintings. It's still distinct and typical of his future habit of going to a place and either ex- exploiting its uh, motifs or its available subjects to the, to the greatest possible extent. You could say milking it. Um, you could say celebrating it. But this is something he does again and again from the 1870s forward, increasingly close to home as he is in Giverny and SEHs. ages. But, you know, whether to back to Trouville or back to Barangeville or uh, Dieppe, in the 1880s, or then back to, down to the, at the late 1880s, the Croz Valley, or even Antibes, or into Italy. He makes these these voyages and creates clumps of paintings about them. And this is one of those first wonderful little clumps.
0: As much as painting Camille on this 1870 trip, he's painting what she's wearing. And not only is he doing that, these are really some of his sketchy est or his most sketchy paintings is there any particular reason that that they are so spare or some of them some of them are so spare so sketchy so
1: wispy almost i'd call them patchy yeah that's a better word that's a better word they're incredibly summary if you were careful you could probably almost detect Count in detail the number of times his brush t- touched the canvas, because they're in- incredibly economical. They're not using very much paint. They're quite often using the ground, the prepared commercial ground that he painted on, which is a, a kind of one of his many variations in gray rather than white. He's using that as a as a unifying tone throughout the painting, and often it it is there as a cloud or as a reflection on the water. He just doesn't paint that part of the canvas and lets it then be the white gray that pokes out. Uh, So he's, he's very economical, and as befits perhaps an artist who is standing in the open air on a sandy beach in one of the pictures from this series alas not with us now um, there's actually sand on the canvas embedded into the into the wet paint bits of sand that were that have never dropped out so it's a it's a it's a very interesting environment for painting challenging and then as you say he's careful about about making sure that you know that Camille's attire is up to date and fashionable without having you be able to count how many buttons there were. It's really, it's a, it's a, it's a nice fine line, a nice sort of boundary between incredibly patchy but yet communicative imagery of, of yes, she had a, a black hat, or excuse me, a buff-colored hat trimmed in black ribbon. You know, her parasol was this and it was lined in this color and her and her skirt was this way and here is how the bustle went. And you can see these these images, and on the next day she was wearing blue and white stripes, for instance, and either she or someone in her retinue was also wearing blue and white stripes. It's a very interesting phenomenon of being at at, at once experimental painting and boudin-like recording of tourism. But you know, when you compare it, Tyler, to a boudin, there's nothing except the actual subject matter that connects them the way they're painted, are so completely different. And he has gone so far beyond what Boudin would have ever been able to do, frankly. I don't want to, I like Boudin a lot, but Boudin gets in one rhythm and he stays there through the 1890s. It's one style of painting. And Monet is, is he almost has to change to, to keep moving. There needs to, be, there needs to be some new thing that he's thinking through to, to keep him moving forward.
0: 1870 is, is a big year in French history. It prompts a certain exodus of, of French painters. Where did they go, and and why is that temporary departure particularly important for Monet?
1: Well, if you will, the safest place to go was to get off of the continent, and the quickest way to get off the continent was to go to England. The Franco-Prussian War had begun in August, and by the early autumn, it was very clear that it was going very badly for the French. Uh, Monet was still in an age bracket that could have been conscripted. He's 30, yeah. Though he had a, a wife and son, he could conceivably have been taken up for the army. And so he really decided, I'm going to get out of here, left in early October to find a place for the family to live in London, and the family, Camille and Jean Monet, followed him. They set up in London in 1870, first living close to the city and then in Knightsbridge and are there for uh, several months after that, in a way in exile.
0: Well, he, he, I guess he the, the one other kind of key point to make about Monet in London before we get to some specific paintings is that he intensifies his engagement with Pizarro and meets someone who would be important to his, his business future, if you will.
1: Absolutely. Through Daubigny, who is also there, he meets the dealer Duranduel, Paul Duranduel, whose family business had been active for a, a, maybe a generation in supplying modern paintings, but pretty unremarkable modern paintings, good but not not crazy, to a, an increasing buying public. Paintings by Corot or Ted Russo or Daubigny again. <laughs> He meets Durand-Well, and it's Durand-Well who lets him know that oh by the way Pizarro is also here so he reconnects with Pizarro um, who he had been living nearby when he was in um in uh, bougival and they reconnect and they spend time together and go to museums together and but I think the I think the encounter with Durand well is almost more important because it it's a meeting that that will then dominate the rest of his Really, the rest of his career through the century, uh, durand becomes the dealer to the impressionists fundamentally, and uh, and Monet's greatest champion.
0: While in London, Monet continues to paint Camille. There's a painting at the Musée d'Orsay that's in the exhibition from seventy seventy one. It is an enormously, wildly, completely different painting of Camille than than what we'd seen earlier in eighteen seventy. Why is it so different?
1: I think it's English. I think it's I think it's Monet in a sense turning back to images that Whistler had exhibited in the eighteen sixties in in Paris and London. And Monet and Whistler knew each other. And I think I think the painting is in terms of its composition, mood, level of detail, in fact, even on account of some of the little the little throwaway hints that are in it a painting on the wall that's cut in half along the bottom, a Japanese fan resting on the the mantelpiece. There are these little details of environment that says, oh, by the way, remember my friend Whistler, he likes to cut pictures in half and he loves Japanese fans. So I think in that way it, it has a it has a, I'm in London now, I better figure out how to paint London differently. But I also think that it's a real illustration of what I was talking about earlier, that the development is not in one direction only. He's gotten to uh, that incredibly abbreviated way of painting in Truville in the summer. And when he gets to London in the autumn, he turns back to a style that is more in keeping with paintings of, of three or four years earlier. You know, it's Tyler, it's... it's when we're thinking about a period that's so short, every year seems like it—it's a big, you know, passing passing time. It's almost as if we're talking about decades, but in fact, we're talking about pictures that were one or two years old. It's not like it was something that he was reaching back deeply into his youth to get. So, I think the, the, that that shift back and forth between detail and abstraction, or you know, abbreviation, is is something that may just be something that was sort of na- natural to him. And the fact that he had that he can move between those two manners is going to be really important um, in, in the painting of London and above all in the painting of Zandam, where he moves uh, in 1871.
0: The show cuts off in, in 1872. The famous Impressionism exhibitions begin in 1874. And the catalog gets into the mid to late 1870s a good bit. In part because in those later years in the 1870s, Monet is allowing, spearheading, extended presentations of dozens of his paintings, including the early paintings in Paris. Why was it important for him to to show that kind of long-term progress, progression, advancement in his work, even in the mid to late 1870s, when he could have just been showing new stuff?
1: Absolutely. I think it's, I think he's very conscious of his image and... And one of the paintings that I discuss at some length in that catalog is the is a picture from Geneva called uh, a hut at Santa Dress.
0: So let me set this up for a quick moment because that was going to be my next
1: question. Uh, this is a painting from eighteen sixty
0: seven. It is just extraordinarily atypical. When when you see the image on on the website, you'll you'll understand what I'm talking about. But it's an eighteen sixty seven painting. So yes, sorry. Go
1: ahead. In the first Impressionist exhibition, he doesn't show this picture, but he shows a big painting from 1867 roughly that is a complicated large multi-figure rather dark brown and white and black interior it's a painting from the Stadel museum in in frankfurt simultaneously he's showing impression sunrise the painting from marmaton that now in marmaton that that gives impressionism its name so on the one hand a a strongly rooted in, in realist subject matter painting of a family at lunch. On the other hand, an almost indecipherable series of large fog effects, boat masts made ephemeral by fog and, and mist and uh, you know a sun trying to break through. These two things are side-by-side side in the Impressionist exhibition. Maybe not side-by-side, side, but they're in the same show, painted by the same artist. They are five years apart in date but I think that even in 1872 he's wanting you to realize that in that five years he has changed and that old manner and new manner are are important to him in, in, this, in this time period. The painting of 1867 of the hut at Santa Dress is a painting that has gone essentially overlooked by generations of art historians. Monet shows it four times between 1868 and 1889. The only other painting he shows so much, the only other early painting he shows so much is Impression Sunrise. And so it's a painting that we have kind of left out of the conversation. And when I first saw it, which was alarmingly sh- a short time ago, I, I thought, well, this is really an incredible picture. It's It is a composition that if you showed it on a slide uh, quiz. Someone would say, oh, that's bound to be 1882. It must be Varangeville. It must be the paintings that he makes of the little fisherman's cottage, which used to be a customs officer's uh, lookout post, perched over the sea on the Normandy coast. Well, instead, it's a some kind of hut, probably downhill from the famous terrace at Santa Dress, on a cliffside a, in this very fashionable resort, a town or garden suburb, shall we say, of La Dress. and he's looking down onto the almost insultingly non-subject. It's a ramshackle cabin, the the flue that must be attached to a a fire somewhere in the interior is actually held onto the cabin itself with a piece of wire, far from being a garden bed like the carefully tended ones he shows in, in other paintings from that same year the landscape in front is a is a mess of weeds and and it then rises to this incredibly beautifully painted sea and sky above that exactly the same ski and, sea and sky that you see in the background of the of the terrace at Dress at the metropolitan so it's a painting that is really from 1867 shown in 1868 1877 in the same show that he's showing the in the same show that he's showing the paintings of the Garcin Lazar, um, he's showing a, a hut on a Normandy coast from 1867, 10 years earlier. And then he's showing it again in a small group of paintings that he puts together to accompany in a private venue his 1880 Salon exhibition, a big landscape painting that's now in the Dallas Museum of Art and then he includes it one more time in the big mid-career exhibition that he organizes for himself with many many dozens of paintings um, at the gallery Georges Petit where he debuts his Crows Valley paintings of 1889 but also shows a selection of early work, each one dated in the catalog scrupulously and listed with its well-known collector as the lender to the exhibition. So in that way, it's a painting that I think he values. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but I think, I also think, and this is something I've come to really only after the exhibition has opened, the things that you learn after the show is, after the catalog is printed and after the show is on the wall are, uh, are Legion. In this case, I am thinking that the fact that he brought it back to exhibition in 1880 may be exactly the the pivot point that he needed to start painting similar subjects in the first three or four years of the 1880s. So that re-encounter with the painting in the show of 1880 that he does in a a set of offices for a publication may well have have prompted him to return to that subject and make more versions of it. And he makes a dozen or more versions of of a hut perched over the sea. Um, with the same, often with the same, warm and cool interplay between the uh, between foreground and background.
0: This this eighteen sixty seven painting features both boats with sails, which are a Monet favorite in these years, but also um, on the left hand side a number of steamships and their quite evident steaming steaminess rising up from the horizon. Is there could there be any significance between? That juxtaposition the sail ships and, and the steamships or or not at all?
1: Oh, sure. I think there is absolutely there an, an acknowledgement of modern transport. The sailboats that he so often paints in the pictures of the 1860s are very, very often fishermen's boats. They have dark gray, um, sometimes appearing even black sails. They're distinguished from the pleasure boats, which have bright white sails typically and so when you're when you're looking at a painting of ships in a harbor by a monet from the 1860s you can tell which ones are for people to go out and sail around in and which ones are out there to work and so you get already that distinction between pleasure and labor that is you know that is very much made though not insisted upon i think in, in this in this kind of work of monets but then always when there can, when there can be a factory Monet will include it. Take, for instance, the paintings, beautiful painting of Argenteuil that's in the National Gallery of Art, where you have both a pleasure boat, wonderful white sails in the sunset kind of picture on the, uh, the left, and then beyond it, the sort of pseudo chateau of a of a rich man, and then beyond that a factory, a smoke sack for the manufacture of some goodness knows what, maybe canning of vegetables or something like that. And and so all of those bits are there because Monet wanted them to be there. I mean, this is an artist who can leave something out if he doesn't if he doesn't like the way it looks. He leaves a steeple out of a painting because he it will mess up the sky. But he when he puts that smokestack there, you know it's not just because he saw it, but because he wanted you to see it too. And so the 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 juxtaposition of the smokestack and the sailboat is as we all learned from Robert Herbert and T.J. Clark back in the 18, uh, ni- 1980s, I
0: said
1: <laughs> 1980s, we learned from them to start reading the details, because details matter, and in a painting that, that has traditionally been interpreted only as note the Play of Light and Shade and the Beautiful Sunlight. You could also say, note the factory, note the sailboat, note the bridge, note the broken bridge, note the fixed bridge, note the railroad bridge, note the the highway bridge. And the choice of subject matter for Monet is not simply what was there. It's him making choices about what to paint.
0: Marvelous. George Shackelford, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Always great to be here.
0: The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to The Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trajil Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Olison, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One O Trix, Point, Never, and related works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, on view through January 1st. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art, with works by 90 artists including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight-Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers, opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is David Breslin, recently the chief curator of the Manil Drawing Institute and now curator and director of the collection at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Breslin coordinated the presentation of the exhibition Picasso the Line, which is at the Manil through January 8th. David Breslin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You build your catalog essay around the idea of Picasso and cartographic line. in In, in the context of Picasso's drawings, what is cartographic line?
2: I was trying to think about places in Picasso's practice that seem like his line is weak or breaking down or stuttering or tarrying or anything that doesn't make it look as confident as we as we generally think of Picasso's lines being particularly if you think of you know, the self-portrait that he did in 1918 or those famous beautiful exquisite drawings from 1920 of Stravinsky and his one of his wives Olga And I wanted to think about a way where you could see him trying to articulate what space is. And for me, that type of line, the cartographic line for Picasso, is one where the idea of space is always relational. It's not definitive. It's not as if he has an idea of what Olga or Stravinsky or even he himself looks like in those portraits from 1918 or 20. But rather a line that is trying to really figure out if he's being made by the objects and the rooms around him or whether he, the artist, is in some ways making these things and bringing them into bringing them to life and and for me, cartography was a way to put these ideas together in a sense that we have the land outside that we walk on, trample on, sometimes claim, sometimes revere. But we also have a way of systematizing what that land is by making maps out of it. And there's a give and take between what that land is and what that map is. One is a construct, another is the land somewhat found, natural. Other ways, it is also a construct as well, of course. But for me, thinking about Picasso as one who's on the fence about whether he's being made by this place, this land, or whether he himself is shaping the interpretation of it was was an avenue that I wanted to explore. And I should say that I stole like any good follower of Picasso did the title for the essay, "The Map and the Territory," from a Michelle Webeck novel of the of the same name.
0: I think the best way to illustrate this question of the unsure line is Picasso's Bottle and Glass on a Table, a 1912 drawing that's at the Menil. What is the unsure, or where are the unsure lines in in this drawing, and and how do they kind of open up that idea?
2: Well, I was lucky to work at the Menil for a couple of years, and the Menil has a really wonderful way of storing works, which is, not typical. It's not down in the basement or off-site, but in these rooms that Mrs. DeMille called the treasure room. So if a curator wanted to go and look at a work, he could. And I was someone who was a Picasso nut when I was in grad school and would write about Picasso on a couple of occasions. And I remember opening up on these treasure rooms and seeing this one from 1912 and just lighting up. But what you never really can catch, and I think our book does A good job of doing it because Carmen Jimenez, who's done Picasso scholarship for a long time, also is pretty exacting in the reproductions that she wants. But if you look at the curator of the the show, yes, yes, the great curator of the show. And if you look at the left leg in any reproduction that you might have of that table, I never really was attuned to how scratchy those lines are. How hesitant they were. It's almost, I write about it almost as if it's trying to get to an itch that you can't really scratch because there's so much marking involved to try to articulate the two sides of this one leg. And then I started looking at the drawing collage, papier collé, even harder and then seeing how a guy who is as exacting as Picasso really didn't cut out that piece of newspaper too cleanly. It's a jagged edge, almost as if a kid's scissors went to work on it. And then you have this canting bottle sitting on the table whose lines also don't really line up. So I'm wondering what the heck is going on. We all know that Picasso can draw a line like nobody else. Even as a kid, he was putting together these things so masterfully. So what's happening in 1912, or what's happening at other periods in his work, where you know one could say he's just dashing something off, it's a thought process. But for me, I think there's something more going on here. It's really a way of working out the fact that in some ways we, the viewer, are also going to be participating in Picasso and understanding whatever this is and if something is so closed off from us that we can't experience it for ourselves, if we can't take this viewing experience and take it into our everyday life of seeing what a glass looks like on a table or what a bottle looks like when we take it into our hand, I think he would say that our, his job wasn't done well enough and that you know, in some ways this being incomplete or being hesitant permits the viewer share in that that share that says that, we in some ways are always articulating what our relationship to these things are. This isn't just some picture that is going to sit on a wall and not affect us any longer. This is almost a sort of training or kind of a—I mean, it's, it's this is probably dramatic, but I—I I think it's almost a way to, in some ways, inculcate another sense of empathy about these things around us in the world. And for me, maybe I'm postulating too much, but. For me, that's what I really think that great art can do. It not only gives us this experience when we're with it, but permits us to bring these experiences to our other encounters, whether they're with things or other people. And for me, doubt or hesitancy or thinking through what I see Picasso doing in this drawing and in other periods, for me, is a lesson that helps me look at the world differently when I'm in it.
0: Cubism either either drawn or painted is is overwhelmingly a, a visual discourse on our relationship to objects and to space as you just said as you as you write in the essay another word for that for the deline- for the delineation of our relationship between objects and space might be negotiation which plays a role in this drawing too the word negotiation uh,
2: ex- <laughs> exactly And I also – another thing that struck me after having looked at this thing in reproduction for so many years and then sitting with it both in those treasure rooms but also in the gallery is how this is going to look pretty basic to anyone who, who looks at this thing for herself. But if you see that U that's part of journal, that's copied on the top. He cuts the u that would have come right after j o and then u to finish journal and the u cut in half makes a j so he's almost abbreviated this word by just using the half of that letter that he's cut out so even even that negotiation with with the material letting it serve a purpose or letting it read differently than it once did is also his both punning, but I think also very cutting. Not cut, that's too punny. <laughs> <laughs> you can even keep that. It's so bad. <laughs> Way of 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 really saying you know this this world is always there tweaking us, and we're tweaking it back. And you know, a lot of people have written about the politics of of some of these things that Picasso decided to include. In the Poplio case, whether they're referring to war, whether it's a conversations about you know you know his friends arguing around a table about what's happening in the world, and for me that's all going on. But I think it's an even larger thing. Like yes, we're having these conversations, or yes, he might be, but he's also having this. It's this sliding in and out of sense. It's this, and I love the this this passage that Rosalind Krauss cites the the semiotician and writer uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, speaking about in reference to Dostoevsky and for Krauss, for Picasso, that, that this kind of changing, this relationship between and among things, she says, it lives a tense life on the border of someone else's thoughts. And for me, I think, Tyler, your idea of negotiation is exactly... Right. And that negotiation isn't a one sided thing, that it has to be open to the give and take of many different parties and then in this case, inanimate parties as well.
0: So I obviously, as you know, didn't pull the word negotiation out of thin air. It is the only complete word in the newspaper collage element that Picasso uses in this drawing. It's 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 the you know, there are fragments of other words, but negociacion is the only full word on the on the cutout. And we'll have an image of the, of that, of course, on, on manpodcast.com. You mentioned earlier the idea that quite often even Picasso's most assured and confident lines never quite meet at a point in in a number of drawings. Taking that idea, how does it apply to or or fit the drawings that Picasso made as he thought through the Monument to Apollinaire that he was working on in August of 28?
2: Yeah, that's for me, that's a really interesting series of drawings. And unfortunately, they were not included in the exhibition, but we have some great images included in the catalog itself. And so this was a piece that he was asked to do for his good friend, the poet Apollinaire about 10 years after Apollinaire's death. And the idea was for this to be a a sculpture, which eventually was made many years later, but the drawings show him constantly trying to figure what this thing was going to be. At first people really thought that it was going to be something made in Apollinaire's likeness and the fact that it became this abstract series of jutting lines that somewhat resemble a figure somewhat allude to a body somewhat look like it's just a network of spanning lines climbing in and out of space it was it was not what the people wanted <laughs> this is why it took so long for it to eventually happen but i i think it's uh something for me and that is remarkable about drawing as a medium period when it's successful, but particularly in Picasso, is that it shows this idea always, or an idea, always in the state of becoming. Whereas in the finished painting or the finished sculpture, we frequently valorize it because it couldn't be any other way. And I think that what you see in the drawings that he made repeatedly in in that summer show him trying to think about what this sculpture might be, or if the sculpture were never to happen, that these drawings would be sufficient enough in showing this friend as someone who's both always projecting out into the world, but you don't see those lines as just lines that are projecting out. They also might as well be coming back into whatever this central figure is. So this idea of becoming as something that's both inwardly oriented, but also outwardly inflected for me is kind of a perfect synopsis of where i see Picasso as a thinker as a, and as an artist as one who uses the line uses his artworks as ways to negotiate what's happening in the world or in fact what the hell the world is to begin with
0: he's also using those lines in in i think this example but in others including one we'll get to in a moment as a way of delineating space and relationships within a composition. So it seems to me that they could also be described as cartographic in terms of defining field and relationships. And maybe a good way into into that is is a drawing that's in the show, a study for Serenade, a painting from 41, 42-ish. And there's a drawing, and we'll have an image of it on unmannedpodcast.com, in which Picasso's using... A web, if you will, of straight lines that run from edge to edge to edge of of a sheet of paper how are are they cartographic, and what are they doing here
2: for me the this These are a remarkable series of drawings, and I'm glad you'll be able to see them because they're they're quite small they're about i think eight by ten inches, and they're installed in a vitrine at the menil and and, and particularly in that way of looking at them because you're looking down, they're quite small, you have this very direct relationship with the work of art. They're even more compelling because you also do see them in relationship to other studies from the same period. But you'll see that there is no piece of that paper that doesn't have a line extending onto it as if the the borders or boundaries of that piece of paper aren't enough, that in some ways this spanning sequences of lines are a way to position what's happening right here, but that there's this key knowledge that this is just really an abbreviation of placing this thing that has, will have its other place in the world within this scene that he's depicting it in. So. In some ways, you know, when we know studies of orthogonals that that map out what perspective is and how that creates a way for us to look into this world. For me, that's a really different kind of history and a really different kind of thinking. For me, the the cartographic line that I'm looking at for or or seeing in Picasso here is one that recognizes that there's a world outside of this picture, that it's not sufficient to just think about what's happening within this frame itself. And these lines that indicate ways of going outside of it or, or pressuring you back into the picture recognize that the viewer of it isn't just going to be lost in some kind of reverie within whatever he's produced, but will always be thrown back into her or his own world. And for me that mapping of space creates something where you're for me that's kind of the the distinction that i try to draw between this map and the territory idea that he's really making a map he knows that what he's doing isn't a reproduction of the world quote as it is because the world isn't ever really as it is we're always producing it whether it's through our artworks or through our politics or through our relationships with other people and so this this kind of, this mapping is the way, and you see this really kind of, I think if, this, if it's the same one we're talking about, Tyler, you have this really abbreviated sense that there might be a figure in this thing. It's got this oval-like head, this little bar for a set of arms, these couple of lines that might be legs, and it's just almost this kind of, both lonely but also discreet shorthand. Here's a body, but there's so much else going on here that will account for how that body seems in this space.
0: You know, there's another thing Picasso does here in this drawing that he does in a lot of drawings. It's a move, if you will. He ends lines with a circle. Here they're not filled in, but in works like The Studies of Guitar from from 1924, 17 years earlier, they are filled in. Why does he, do you have a, a guess or an idea or a theory on why sometimes he just lets lines be lines and sometimes he ends them with a circle?
2: I have no idea. <laughs> I would love to know. I mean, I what I've always seen, especially in those great guitar ones that you bring up, is that there's such a interesting relationship to cosmological maps, to, star, to stargazing maps. And I've always wondered whether he's looking at those as well, that these are... In some ways, things that have a relationship to cosmology, but they also look like they're preparations for musical scores. So maybe the idea of punctuating a line like one would in music could be there. But in other ways, I don't know. And I wish we had Carmen on the other end of the phone to, to weigh in on that as well.
0: Well, David Breslin, thanks so much.
2: It was my pleasure and have a great Thanksgiving.